and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Really excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help me out. So if this is your first time here, welcome. I work as a mental performance coach where I get to work with all kinds of athletes and sports teams on their mindset. And I love what I do for a living, love working with elite athletes and elite teams. And our guest today has had experience and exposure to a lot of those teams and athletes as well. So I'm excited to chat with him. But before we get to him, I want to tell you about something that I'm doing in my private practice. So for years, I've worked with athletes and sports teams. And over time, I've started to work in the corporate world as an executive coach. And I love that work. I find it fascinating, intriguing. I'm super curious about how businesses work and how leadership works and how we can all show up as our best in whatever craft we are doing every day and whatever we are pursuing from a career standpoint. So I launched a cohort in January of 2019. And the idea of the cohort was that I would coach one-on-one 10 different executives. These are executives that are aged from 30 to 60 years old. They're from the director level to the CEO level. And I coach them for 12 sessions one-on-one. Some of them are in person in the Washington, D.C. area. Others are over Zoom and they're all over the country. And after those 12 sessions, I'm bringing those 10 executives together for a day-long retreat right outside of Washington, D.C. It's going to be an awesome retreat. We're doing that in June. And I am launching my second cohort in late June, early July with a retreat for that cohort occurring in December. So if you are open-minded, curious, highly driven, and want to take your game to the next level and you are in that corporate world, feel free to email me, brian at blevinson.com. Once again, that's brian at blevinson.com. I'd love to hear from you and learn about what you're up to and tell you a bit more about the cohort and see if you're a good fit for the program. So thank you all for listening. Thanks for your support. And uh, if it's of interest, please reach out. Now to today's guest. Henry Abbott is somebody who I've been following in the basketball world for years. He writes tremendous content and has also been at the forefront of a lot of the NBA content that you see on ESPN Today and in other outlets. Henry started a blog in 2005 called True 
through hoop, that blog ended up blowing up and he's going to talk about how crazy that was to put a blog out there and then see a lot of people start reading his content. And it was so popular that he ended up bringing that blog to ESPN.com and he started true hoop at ESPN. And once again, that's where some of the best sports journalists and NBA journalists in the business still are to this day. Henry has since left ESPN after a 10 year run and started his own thing. Once again, it's called true hoop. And currently they are sending newsletter format emails with all kinds of gems and quality content that you really can't get anywhere else. So if you're an NBA fan, you've probably read Henry's stuff. You've probably heard him either on podcasts or on TV. And Henry is somebody who really has been at the forefront of a lot of the changes that have occurred in the NBA over the last 10, 15 years. So I know you're going to love this story about how Henry became a writer, how he became a journalist, how he has been entrepreneurial throughout his career, and how he's always seeking truth and trying to find out what exactly is going on and what leads to success and, and how teamwork plays a role in culture, both in his business, in the sports writing business, and also in basketball. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Henry Abbott. Henry, excited to have you on the podcast. You are up to some new and exciting things. So we're definitely going to get to what you're up to from a business standpoint. Uh, but I actually wanted to go back to 2005 uh, and start there and really find out about what inspired you to go into this blogging verse or blogiverse or unit blogging universe, whatever they called it back then. And I would love to just start there. And then we're going to go back and forth, find out about what has made you, you. But I wanted to start there because I feel like that's a pretty watershed year for you, I would imagine. So take me to 2005. What was that like for you? And we'll go from yeah. there. No, this is a fun, you, you sort of told me you were going to ask about this. And so because so long ago, I went and asked the authority, which is my wife. And I was like, well, what, what was happening then? Like, how did this go? And, um, you know, I wanted to, the story to be that I made some genius, like insight about the future and, and this sort of great, exciting entrepreneur, visionary story. But that wasn't quite how, how it happened. Now that I had the helpful reminders, um, what really happened was, I had a full-time job in journalism a few years before. I had a journalism degree, and I worked at CBS News, and then I worked for a CBS News affiliate in Madison, Wisconsin, where I literally was like a street reporter covering murders and stuff, um, and a freelance writer for the local weekly Isthmus. Shout out to Alternative News Weeklies. And made if you add up all the dollars I made in a year doing that, they totaled zero dollars, basically. It was like, it was... It was really minimum wage or, or, or worse in some cases. The freelance writing was per word. And if you put a lot of time in, it was actually worse than minimum wage. So when we got an offer, uh, Jessica and I did to take on a big freelance project. Um, it was a cinch to drop our jobs and move back to the East Coast and do that. Um, that was like this one. We had the inside track, family connection. And it was like a few thousand. It was, I don't know, maybe $10,000 job, which is enough to like, cover our move and stuff. Then we were full-time freelance writers. And from then on, every move I made was in the context of nothing to lose, right? It was, uh, I wasn't leaving some big corporate job. Um, as, and really, honestly, truthfully, what happened was we figured out how to work together and support ourselves and pay for the mortgage in this house we still live in, um, both working full-time. And then we started having children. And Jessica's a lot more skilled than I am at some of the key things that made us money. <laughs> So we needed a better, different plan where I was going to do most of the work. 
And um, that was just the arrangement we came to. And, you know, it was, she was very happy with it, still is, which is great. Um, I was a little desperate. Um, we had, I, I learned in that period that the web, as it had been used, was kind of dying. I felt like we, if we had a huge contract to write all of the content for a famous law firm's website. So I'm interviewing like 60 partners or whatever and writing their bios. And I know as I'm writing them that nobody's going to read any of this. How does that even, how does that work even come, come to be? Like how, it sounds, it sounds so out of the ordinary. What? Um, I mean, there's this whole world of professional writing. That's just like, you never know about um, that particular one. I'm pretty sure what happens is like uh, this fancy Philadelphia law firm hires a fancy Philadelphia design agency to make them a website. Cause at that time, I don't know, we're talking 2000 and, three or something, um, 2004, a lot of those places didn't yet have websites or they had one that like somebody's kid made. <laughs> um, so now they're like, oh, the web might be a real thing. We need to get our website. So they're going to pay, let's make it up $100,000 for someone to make a beautiful website. And there's a series of meetings, blah, blah. Well, those design agencies have people like my wife and I on call to just, oh, we're going to need words. There are words in there. <laughs> so we make a proposal and they pay us, whatever they pay us, some five-figure number to go and do this arduous work of you know, putting together these like professional bios and we're trying to be all artful about it, but nobody cares. Right. They just want to have like, <laughs> they just want to have like the regular lawyer bio. Um, so that I, I remember in particular, uh, I think maybe my, I definitely had one young child. Maybe the second one was just being born and working these crazy days, you know, stressful. You'd never get to relax. I'd worked long days of writing many thousands of words and then at the end of the day, for 10 minutes before I leave, I'd work on the stupid blog, the stupid free blogger blog that my friend Alex forced me to make at a Christmas party. Um, he actually registered me for it and was like, you have to do this. This would be good for you. And I would write some, I, I think one of the important early posts was about how it's possible to blow your nose without a tissue, um, like nasal irrigation. This was the topic, right? And um, so... Recapping, I'm spending all day on my important web job, right? And no one's ever going to read it. No one's even going to respond to the email, right? I'm going to send it off and it's like, well, that's done. And then I spend 10 minutes talking about like blowing your nose and people would appear and say, oh, I love this. This is awesome. So interesting. I was like, well, this is definitely a better use of the web. So then um, I am a little... Henry, let's pause there. Can you explain what it felt like to get paid a decent amount of money and share this information with uh, the law firm. And then what it felt like to actually get the feedback from people about blowing your nose. Like what did that feel like inside those differences? Well, if you thought of them as like a party that you'd want to get invited to, you want to go to the second party. Like, like the first one's really stuffy and it's not that fun because nobody talks, right? Yeah. So yeah, we're, we're, I guess humans in general and me in particular validation seeking creatures. Right. And uh, yeah, being part of a conversation um, is something I've always really valued. Right. And that was fascinating. It was fast. That's where the web got interesting where it was like, Oh, look, here's, I mean, fast forward a couple of years, I did have true hoop and we can unpack that if you want, but suddenly no, I remember there was a guy named Mert Uar who was a student in Turkey, and he sent me the most interesting MBA observations. And we would duke it out. Sometimes I quote him on True Hoop. I was like, "Here's this 19-year-old in Turkey whose English was perfectly terrible, and he has a brain that I just love. And he's watching the same Rockets game or whatever that I am. And and this is the web being cool, right? This is when the web was like the dream of the web, right? 
but it's an amazing thing. It gives us insight into what you value most because other people would say, oh my God, I get to do this work. They don't even look at it and I get a paycheck and it's easy and I can just build my business that way. But you really love the self-worth that you felt when you put something out there that was adding value to people's lives in some capacity and that was fulfilling for you. And as a result, you went toward that rather than stay the course in sort of the corporate world. Oh, I can't. Yeah, no, no, not in a million years. That thing you said, that first thing, like, yeah, I almost puked a little. Yeah, that's not. You know, a lot of people do. A lot of people do go down that path because the paycheck is validating for them that they're doing good work. And that outcome or that result and that external factor really does become what they are, are seeking and going after. That's cool. I just it makes me want to cry. I can't do that for me. Like I, I know a lot of people who, who have the ability to make those kinds of choices. And then I guess the fun part, the fulfilling part of their lives is like not the 10 hours a day they're at the office. Right. And like, for me, I just can't, it's too much time to ask. Like I can, I can go to a meeting where I'm bored or whatever, and I can be somewhat cordial and I can hobnob a little, but I'm like a little kid at the museum pretty quick. And I know that, you know, I'm 44. I'm not going to live forever. And I don't, you know, I, I want to do things that matter and I want to help people be happy and joyous and whatever. And like, and if I'm spending a lot of time doing stuff, I don't even believe in like, what? <laughs> so, so let's back up a little bit and then we will get to true hope. So give me some yeah. context into your childhood, what life was like, what helped shape that curiosity that you have that desire to do something that's meaningful for you. Oh, I don't know. I don't think we have enough time. <laughs> you said, Henry said before we fired up these mics that I have as much time. So you talk to somebody like me and, and that, is, that, I, that is where I live. Give me, some, give me some context though. What was life like for you as a kid? Um, I have the weirdest combination of like wealth and poverty, I feel in certain ways. Um, so my dad, my family's English. I was born in England. And my dad was a doctor and there was a shortage of doctors in the U.S. So they recruited doctors from overseas with green cars. And so we were one of these families that in the mid-70s uh, moved from England to uh, a little town outside Portland, Oregon called Newburgh, which then was really nothing going on of important. Now it's wine country, which that all happened later. But uh, so now it's nice. Then it wasn't. Uh, my dad was like the town doctor for this little town in Newburgh. Um, and... Um, my life, I guess, was pretty normal. We had like a pretty nice house with a view and everything. And how then, old, my, how old were you when you moved? Less than a year. Okay, yeah. so um, your whole life you've been in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, then my parents got divorced when I was five. My mom moved to Portland, more or less. So then we had this weird, like, two houses every other day, living out of a bag kind of thing. Um, but I went to a, a Ritzy private school, which was great. I, I went to Oregon Episcopal School, um, which was which I loved. And um, meanwhile, post-divorce, my dad got really excited that we should all move back to England. Um, yeah, and which, no, you know, no one else was that excited when <laughs> my dad was excited. So we try, he kind of like led this experiment where we moved back. This is a bold thing to move your divorced family back to England. <laughs> like, he, you know, we were too young to separate from my mom. Anyway, so, so in seventh grade, Three of us moved back for a while and we just hated it. So my seventh grade. 
So then we like moved back to America. Then we kind of cut this deal where I was like, look, I want to graduate from high school with my friends in the US. And he was like, okay, fine. But then you're going back to England. I'm like, so I just was like, great, cool, deal. So then, <laughs> I'm telling you so much stuff that doesn't matter. Um, then he kind of cut this deal with my school where they I'd already skipped a grade. They let me skip another grade. So now I graduated from high school. I was 15 years old. Um, Wait, all right. So time out. Were you, did academics and school come easy to you? Yes. So you were gifted is what they would call from an academic standpoint. I mean, I wasn't like the valedictorian, but I was like the kid in his, I, I was in all the honors classes without a tremendous amount of effort, um, which was nice. You know, like <laughs> it wasn't. And, and you said, you said three of us, how many siblings? I sort of was confusing there. I have one sister. The three of us were my mom, my sister, and me, even though you may notice that my dad was the one who wanted to motivate the move, and he didn't actually get free of his job to make the move. So um, so your dad stayed, and your mom and your yeah. sister went to England because it was your dad's vision that you should do that. You go there for about a year and then move back. It was Can only a semester. We came back for Christmas, and my sister and I were just like, sorry, dude, we're not going back. Got uh, it. That- popular um and and one more question in this yeah. space you're five years old any memory of of that experience of the divorce what, what was that like for a five-year-old oh wow i do actually remember it um i remember i took the bus uh, to and from kindergarten and um weirdly that day and only that day i saw outside the bus window i saw my parents car like driving in this little town we lived in and I later learned that that was the day they were going to the lawyer to get divorced. And somehow like, I had this little picture of, oh, they're going to get divorced. It wasn't traumatic. It was practically a complete and total hassle. Um, you know, they were not very close to each other. And I spent, I feel like I spent a ton of my childhood, like putting my clothes into a bag and then meeting in like a parking lot outside a funeral home, halfway between two houses while the other parent was like, finishing at work. <laughs> like that's, that's always been my childhood sitting in the parking lot of a funeral. <laughs> and your sister, how old is she? What's the age difference between you and her? She's two years older. And what was it like for her as a seven year old going through that? I mean, I, I would guess worse. I think she probably remembers more. Um, that said like, we're these lucky kids, right? When we're the children of a wealthy couple who went to a ritzy private school and, we had like uh, rabbits and horses and chickens and stuff, you know, like, um, but the thing that was traumatic for her, uh, now I'm going way beyond psychoanalyzing a blogger and out of blogger's sister, but um, the next part of the story is that we did go back to school in England after graduating from high school in America and they make you take A levels before you go to a good British university. So we went to like a ritzy boarding school in England and Three weeks in, I bailed. I was like, forget it. Like, I, I'm not going to live in this room with these six guys um, after I've graduated from high school. I felt like the Fonz. I felt like I should be riding motorcycles and wearing leather jackets and, like, having, like, this amazing life. And, um, and they were literally, like, fed checks at 8.30 at night and just uniforms. And um, it was a perfectly nice school, but I just felt like I was way beyond that. Um, my sister stayed. So we were in this kind of, like, she was basically being good and doing what we had agreed to do at this very homesick moment of the school in England. And I just abandoned her there. Right. And, uh, and it was hard. And then she, but she stayed, she still is in Europe. Like she stayed in Europe forever. Like she, 
she went to the University of Edinburgh and um, she's had a whole something in Spain and now England again. But, you um, guys graduated from high school at the same time because she was 17. So the idea is you graduate together, then you go to this yeah. boarding school together for a year, and then we're going to go to university. That was like the vision and the game plan. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like you also were somebody who had an opinion and wasn't afraid to voice your opinion either to mom and said, oh, we're staying when we came back to the U.S. or I'm out of here three weeks into boarding school. Were you were you someone who challenged authority? What were you like personality wise? I don't. I was a fairly like I, I think of myself as like a pretty like happy, jokey, normal kid. But like those moments, that was really hard, right? Like this was like that was. It felt like my life had gone terribly awry when I was in this boarding school with no friends in the middle of nowhere in England, like. I just didn't see the, it was hard and I didn't see the point at all. I think it forced me in a collection of big personalities, to be clear. Like I didn't feel like I stood out as a big personality. People laugh now because I still feel like I'm this bashful guy. And like my closest friends, family members are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but then I was like, I just felt like that situation kind of forced me to be extremely clear. And it was hard. And it, you know, I think, like my dad and I get along great now, but it was a long time after that. That was like the formative break in our relationship. We didn't talk for years after that. I had to pay my own way through college and I was quickly waiting tables and just trying to like figure out life without my dad's support after that thing. So that was like a, that was a, that was a, a crisis, you know? And he wasn't happy because you weren't following his direction and his vision that he had set out for you. Yeah, exactly. So but there's like a fearlessness underneath all that to say, like, even despite him thinking that this is the right thing for me, I think that this is this other direction is the right thing for me. Any idea where that comes from? Because a lot of other people, especially at 15, I mean, look at 15, I was doing the same thing with my family. Like I was telling them they wanted me to go this way. I went the other way. Um, But not at the expense of our relationship, not at the expense to be frank of them supporting me. Right. So it sounds like at a very young age, you're saying, I'm going to go in a different direction, regardless of what my dad thinks and what consequences might occur of that. Am I, am I on that? Is that accurate? I think you're defining like the a, a sort of odd thing about me that comes up often. I don't, it just feels normal to me. Um, I've recently had conversations about this trait in me with the NBA where they're like, basically like everybody just wants to say nicer things than you. <laughs> right? Like, and I'm like, yeah, but I kind of know what's going on here. So I just can't go along with that. <laughs> you know, it's the same kind of thing, right? I'm, I am a little bit of, or I use, I've used this analogy a bunch of times lately where like, if you're in a car being driven by a friend and you think they're going the wrong way, right? Like I'm with you make one turn, two turns, I'm just, we're all trying to have fun. You're trying to make it fun. But after like the third turn, like I'm going to be the guy. Like I am. I'm going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like where, you know, I think you got to go left here. You're like, it's not fun, but that's kind of my job <laughs> a little bit. Like I'm like that from LeBron. <laughs> so you're like a truth seeker and, and you want to find the efficient best way or the best path. There's a lot of, you're not going to sit back if you think that something should be done differently or. Uh, challenge the way that it's always been done. I would imagine you're not the guy that says this is the way it's always been done, so that's why we're going to keep doing that. That's not going to be sufficient uh, for you. Yeah, that's not. That's not. 
Um, and I don't feel responsible for everything. Like there's tons of stuff. Like I'm a, like, trust me, I can like sit in the backyard and drink rosé with the best of them. Right. Like I am not like on duty at all times. Like, but this stuff, like, you know, what works to win NBA games or, or where am I going to live? Which is the story with my dad, et cetera. Like that's where I am on duty. Right. When in, in these, in these things, I feel like, yeah, I can't just, I, I can't go along with, with something I think is going to fail. Right. And actually, uh, okay. Um, I think of it this way sometimes too. A lot of people I know have like what I would consider like a big motor where they can like work hard and go in a certain direction. Right. And I really admire that. But I also think we need to think very carefully about what that direction is. Right. And a lot of people work really hard, just four degrees off and then look where you end up so far from where you want it to go. So I do feel like I'm a little bit of like, what's the map here? What's the, what's the goal? Like, you know, where are we headed? And is this the right thing to do? And just to take a pause and be like, you know, is this the right direction? I, I think I'm that guy. I agree with that in so much. You go to a commencement speech and they just say, work really hard and love what you do. And I'm kind of like, wait a second, like passion, I understand, but you know, I can have passion. I used to say I could have passion with playing video games, but that's not going to cause me to be, have a career. Although now you, you can, so that doesn't really work, but I could have passion for something and not be very good at it. Uh, I'm passionate about dancing at weddings, but I don't have the flexibility or the dancing ability to become a professional dancer. Right. And then on the other side, I, I love what you're saying is sometimes it's not just hard work. It's efficient hard work or it's hard work. at something that you could maybe be one of the top people in the world at. And I see so many people that work their ass off, but they're doing it. It's something that is limited in its scope or capacity. And, and by the way, if that's what they want to do, cool, like more power to them. But I see so many people get stuck because they're working really hard. Uh, they have a passion, but they can't figure out where the roadmap is as you, as you started to talk about. And interestingly, I don't know if you know this or not, but the story of how the word coach came to be, which is what I consider myself. So it comes from this town in Hungary that was called Coaches Hungary, K-O-C-S. And that's where the horse and buggy or the carriage or the stagecoach was invented. And Ox University of Oxford, which your family is probably familiar with. You would um, love for me to have gone there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sure your dad, like that would have been <laughs> it for Henry. <laughs> totally. So they took the word, I think, in the 19th century to use it for their tutors. So their tutors were called academic coaches. And you think about what a academic coach's job or a carriage or horse and buggy's job is to get someone from where they are to where they want to go. So they have a destination and then it's to help them get from where they are to where they want to go. So I love that story because I think at the end of the day, my job is to help figure out, all right, where do you want to go? And then how do we either unlock your potential or unlock the possibilities to help you get there? And so I, I love how destination oriented you are, vision oriented you are, because I think it, it is really important. And that doesn't mean we can't play around in the sandbox and then figure out the vision later. Um, but it sounds like for you, it, it's really helpful when you have a vision and then you can go to the work and put the work in to fill in the gaps of that vision. You know, this is an amazing point And you're making me think you uh, should talk to Steve Magnus. Do you know who he is? I know uh, of him from the book, um, him and Brad, Brad Stover. I'm going to connect you with him. So Steve Magnus, I feel like they're like the world experts on passion right now. And so 
So in everything you just said, I'm going to just change the analogy slightly from horse and buggy to like a car. Like, I think passion is the gasoline. Like, that's gasoline can do a lot of things. It can start a fire, right? Like, you need to put it in the right part of the car, and then you need to drive in the right direction. Both those things have to happen, or else it's like just stinky and dangerous, right? But I think it, passion is one ingredient that, with all the other ingredients, it becomes a very important one. But just alone... I mean, I'm actually reading. I can, I can literally do like uh, it's passion paradox, right? That's the book right there here, is. baby. Um, <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's, it's also affiliated with like fraud and cheating and, you know, all these things, all these, um, Jeffrey Skilling and, uh, uh, Elizabeth Holmes of the Theranos scandal. Um, uh, Alex Rodriguez, they all think passion is the most important thing too. Right. Interesting. Like, you gotta be a little careful with this passion thing, right? It's it's only it's gasoline. It's gasoline. Very cool. So so back to you and, and your journey. So now you're at university. I think you said you're you're waiting tables. Um, yeah. what are you studying? What are you interested in? What is young Henry thinking he wants to do with his life? I had this crazy year of not going to university where I was just waiting tables because I had been, you know, I enrolled in school in September in England and then left, I guess, at the end of September, and I'm back living in my mom and stepdad's basement in Oregon and just like, I guess I got to apply to colleges now. Right. So I didn't have a college counselor or anything, but, um, some amazing woman, uh, called me up with basically like a, she took pity on me and gave me incredible, almost a full ride to NYU. Um, not like a scholarship, just like she cobbled together a bunch of financial aid money because she knew I wanted to go to NYU. Cause dad, um, dad is saying I'm not paying for university. Yeah, point. I literally like signed forms saying that he like wasn't. Uh, there's some way you could. I don't. It wasn't like he fully disowned me, but like I did paperwork that he was like we were disassociated financially. Because um, you're, six, you're 16 years old at that point, right? 16, 17, something like that. You're yeah, young. Yeah. You're under 18. 16, yeah, I was 16. I was 16. And when um, that's all going on with dad, what's mom? What's mom's thought process? What is she saying to you? I think she was like, "Please let this work out." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, basically, she was like, I'm here for you, and I believe in you, and um, we'll do our best, you know, and um, they contributed to college, but they didn't have anything like my dad's kind of money, you know, like, and um, it was hard, you know, but she was just like, I'll, we'll be here, which was an amazing thing for parents to say, right? Did mom um, work? Was mom working? Yes. Yeah. She's had a bunch of interesting jobs. She um, made a lot of videos um, and worked for a long time at a um soft tissue injury prevention consultancy pretty they like go to disney and be like here's how to lift the box off the assembly line so you don't hurt your back and then make a little custom video about that um anyway she did a bunch of interesting stuff but um yeah uh they were wonderful and supportive and i just filled out all these applications i was just the most random like a 16 year old pick i applied to like you know now that my daughter's going through it, I'm like, the way I applied to college was ridiculous. <laughs> but anyway, it worked out. went to NYU. I didn't declare a major for the first couple of years. You didn't have to. And then I guess my second semester, sophomore year, I did Tibetan studies and went to India, Nepal, and Tibet. And, like Met the Dalai Lama, life-changing experience, all this stuff. And uh, But that was the semester I would have had to have declared a major. And I came back um, from that and was starting... I, I'm getting the timing a little wrong, but anyway, but someone, I get a phone call and they're like, Hey dude, you didn't declare a major. You have to tell me on this phone call what your major is. And I was like, Oh no, no, no. I need like, like, I need, I need to give me an hour. Like, okay, you have one hour. It's like, I hang up and I called my high school buddy 
who at that time was like a forest firefighter. I'm like, I'm like, dude, I got this problem. Like, I need to solve it. And, he, and he's like, well, it seems like you have some good family connections in journalism, which was true. I had had an internship at, in journalism in New York. And he's like, that seems like that'd be easier for you. So I'm like, all right, good call. So I just like call him back. I'm like, journalism. <laughs> and I've, I've liked it ever since. So it worked out. All right. <laughs> That's not what I was expecting. Not it. So starting your junior year, you started to take uh, journalism classes, yeah. and yeah. and did you like it right away? Did, were you passionate about it? What what yeah. uh, resonated or didn't resonate with you right away? I had already taken some classes, um, and actually, I've been uh, Robert Krolwich, who's kind of a hero of mine. He's the co-host of Radio Lab now, but um, then he worked at CBS News and ABC News, and I had been an intern on a, a W. UNET public television New York Channel 13 co-production with the BBC. Um, they made this amazing show called The Edge. It started the same time as Charlie Rose down the hall. Um, it was awesome. And I, so that kind of, that's really why my friends said that is because I had gone to that internship every day and loved being part of it and kind of got the bug. Um, quickly at an NYU, and the journalism is really, it's a, NYU is a great place to study journalism because all of the journalism of the world is a few blocks away. What happened in the classroom was cool, but what happened outside was amazing. And, you know, I think it's very early. They're like, here's a video camera and three other people go make a TV news story. You know, come back in four hours. Um, that would be like a day one assignment. And then, you know, there's some cool media theory. And I, I it was all, I felt like a fish in water for all of that. And, um, you know, by the end, I, mean, I had these really like proud moments. Uh, there was one day where, uh, one of the classes is TV news production and it's like 40, 50 kids put on a news show, like a real news show that's on a real station you can watch in New York. And let's say it airs at eight o'clock on Thursday nights. I'm making that up. Well, I forget something went terribly wrong. We're like at four o'clock that day. We learned that the executive producer of that show, which is a huge job, um, was going to no show because of illness or something, some family thing. And the professor who was like just a, veteran mike ludlum veteran of cbs news i see them everyone's like huddled around he kind of was like i think if you just ask henry to do it it'll be fine and i don't know why he said that about me like i didn't think i wouldn't have picked me but it was fine i ran around like a crazy maniac but everything worked and i was like oh like like and everybody liked it like everybody liked working with me in that way right and i was like oh i think i can maybe i am that guy like maybe he was right to pick me right and um that was cool. I hosted a radio show, which still goes on today. Um, I started a radio show at WNYU, and I was the assistant news director, or actually co-news director, um, after some negotiating. But uh, yeah, no, that was great. I, I love journalism, and I still do. I still think it's the right place for me. But I've had other people that are journalists come on this podcast. I'll use an example of someone that I'm sure you know, Howard Beck. And Howard talked about growing up and reading the newspaper and really wanting to be a newspaper guy. And everything that you're talking about is more TV, radio uh, in that space. Um, so I'm just curious when you're going through that experience, where did you see yourself? Did you see yourself on TV, on radio and the newspaper and Sports Illustrated? Because uh, I, I could... I didn't even realize this until you started talking. I'm going over the people that we've had on. We've had on a lot of journalists, 
Um, we had on George Solomon, who's editor of the Washington Post. We had on Don Yeager, who worked for Sports Illustrated. And a lot of those guys, um, they grew up with newspaper and newspaper or Sports Illustrated. Newspaper and magazine were really the thing. And it's an interesting time to be talking about this because today ESPN Magazine, I think, called it a quits. And so we're going to get into journalism and how journalism has evolved and changed. And I think it's a big part of your story, but um, I want to just go back to when you're in college, were you seeing yourself, where were you seeing yourself back then? Uh, NYU forces you to pick like a broadcast or print concentration. I picked broadcast, I think, because I just, although I read the paper religiously, I never fetishized it. And you rightly deduced to me that I was never going to be someone who was like, well, we've always done it this way, so we ought to do it. And Howard and I have actually sat on panel discussions and debated this. Like, like he's like, well, I guess I'm the old dinosaur. And like, I love Howard, but like, like he's a total fetishizer of like, you ought to be able to write a good old game story on deadline. It's like, why, Howard? Like, nobody even likes reading them, right? Like, it just, I like what excites me is, like, you're talking to me in this office of my attic, and like, there's this laptop here, and I can like, put ideas into this thing. And if I'm any good at it, people can get those ideas and then we can discuss those ideas, right? Like exactly which pipe they go through and exactly what format, like I'm agnostic about that, right? Like we're just going to, however, it's most successful, right? Like right now I think podcasting is pretty cool because it really gets ideas into people's heads in a meaningful way where they feel like they're talking to each other, right? So that feels important to me. You know you're entrepreneurial, whether you call yourself an entrepreneur or not, I don't know. But a lot of people that I'm sure you've been around at ESPN and uh, in other lines of work in the journalism space uh, are not very entrepreneurial. Um, where does your entrepreneurial spirit come from? I mean, I mentioned we were broke for a long time. <laughs> it's probably- yeah, kid, tell me about being broken because you started it by saying we're rich and poor. And you really talked about sort of the rich aspect. I, I haven't heard the broke the broke piece. Have I? Oh, I'd love to talk about that. <laughs> like, I I mean, when we got married, um, when Jessica and I got married uh, in 1998, one of the gifts that we got was, which is a great gift, was like an hour of like one of the top like financial advisor consultants in New York City, who was this wonderful woman. I forget her name, but. This was a smart idea for a couple starting out, right? Like, you know, what should we, how should we set up our bank accounts and you know, all this kind of stuff. So in advance of that, she sent us a little questionnaire and some like pointers of like, you know, make sure you bring in these documents and this and that. And so we go, we basically went to this thing in this beautiful office in midtown Manhattan with a beautiful view. And she was like, wait, you guys, what? Like she basically like just wanted to give us money because she felt so terrible for us. Like, and um, we joke about it as a couple, but at that time, and we've been, this was not like month one. Like we had been living together and figuring out our lives together for years at this point. But at this point, we proudly reported to her we made together as a couple $2,220 a month. And like, that's what we lived on. We lived right here in this town in a rental and we gritted it out. And like, you know, we, it grew and grew and we ended up making much more than that. But like there were years of, I mean, People joke about rice and beans, but like we literally ate rice and beans because that was, I mean, my wife is a wizard. She can go into the grocery store and be like, you know, cabbage is 69 cents a pound right now, but this time of year, it's going to drop pretty soon. It's going to be 39 and then we're going in on cabbage, right? But for now, and that'll keep at least this long. So we're going to have, you know, and like the dry beans are a great value with the fiber and the protein and you know, this cost per pound, blah, blah, blah. Like, 
you know, we could make whatever was cheap that week into a good life. And we weren't like, what was me about it? Like, you know, but what we, you know, we figured it out. And, um, but it was from a floor of two, 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 oh, you know, like, and, uh, so now I feel we're, you know, whatever happens, you get to be entrepreneurial then, right? Like if you know that you can handle $2,000 a month, right? If you know that like, that's the worst case scenario and it's fine, then you have a little bit more, you don't have to be quite so terrified of losing your corporate job or taking the big risk, whatever it is. Like we had already done that, right? Like starting a blog company, blog was like, sure, fine, you know, great, whatever, you know, like, well, we're risking like, you know, maybe $25,000 in time, right? Like feels like nothing compared to the risks of like our livelihood, which we'd already sort of confronted. So you start, you start True Hoop um, mm-hmm. and it's not about Kleenexes and whatever you were talking about earlier about blowing your nose. Um, one thing, one thing you haven't given us any insight into is, is yeah. sports. Uh, I didn't sure. hear anything as a kid. I didn't hear, I, I, you know, had to play soccer growing up cause my dad is from England. I didn't hear anything sports related. So perhaps you can give us a little insight into why start a blog about sports and specifically why basketball. Yeah. So Portland, Oregon, where I grew up, doesn't have any professional sports except the NBA, right? It has the Portland Trailblazers and that's it. And in, um, if we could do the math, my seventh grade year, uh, they invented the Walkman. Maybe it was sixth grade, um, sixth or seventh grade. And um, do you remember the bright yellow Sony sports Walkman? Yeah, I think I had a black one. I don't know why, but I remember getting Janet Jackson's uh, tape, and then I remember getting the Simpsons tape. This is coming back to me. I, yeah. I don't like. I had the most random tapes, but anyway. But I think the yeah, I think I can remember the yellow one. Go on. But you listen to the heck out of those tapes, right? I mean, like it was so cool. They weren't headphones. <laughs> You'd ruin them, and then they had like the little headphones that are kind of like the headphones you get on an airplane that have the little like yeah. foam around them. That's not gonna work. Yeah, that's no good. That, yeah, that's those fall out. <laughs> I, yeah, that's not. I, I never like that. Um, so I, it became like a loophole in the parenting of the Abbots, whereby like you could listen to your Walkman while you were doing your homework. And we had a lot of homework to be honest. We went to this pretty challenging school, so I could be like at a desk or a table somewhere with those headphones on and and books in front of me, and I was to all appearances doing my homework. But that's when I learned that you could put the radio on to the Blazer game. And it was like way more fun. (laughs) It was terrible for getting your homework done. But I had these like thrilling, like solo experiences of being, you know, I was a child of divorce. And I was like, you know, my, often my dad who worked long hours wasn't even there, right? Like my sister and I are alone in our rooms doing our homework and it's like dark. And but meanwhile, I was like, now there's like, you know, Terry Porter's hitting a game winning shot. So going on that little journey was exciting. And I didn't have, like, I, I was part of a rich bunch of friends and had a great, like, friend life. But I didn't have a lot of Blazer fan friends. It was just kind of like a Henry thing. We were just like, like yeah, and I'll sneak off and, like, you know, then there'll be playoff time and I watch the play. They're like, what are you, like, you're into the Blazers? Like, what? Um, but, yeah, then then they got really good. They were in the finals and stuff by the time I was going to college. So um, then I had the bug bad. So I when I started the mm, – Okay, here's a weird story. So I went to that Ritzy private school in Oregon, and they had a like alumni gathering in New York. But it's a tiny private school, graduating class of like 50. The alumni event in New York was five people. 
So uh, I dragged Jessica to this thing and there's a, a woman there who I knew sort of from high school. We weren't in the same class or anything, but we, you know, we knew each other. And her name is Anna Gebby. And I had noticed that Slam Magazine had in its masthead the name Anna Gebby. And I was like, this couldn't be Anna Gebby from my high school, could it? You know. So when she walks in, I was like, Anna, wait, are you the same Anna Gebby at Slam Magazine? And she was so happy that I asked her that because like nobody ever asked her that. And that's how I got into basketball journalism because um, well, this story's even better. Okay, sorry, I'm talking so much. So... Do you That's recall? the idea. That's the idea of this, by the way. So don't worry about it. <laughs> I try not to be just such a monologuer, but it's fun. Um, uh, do you recall the controversy over the NBA's official magazine airbrushing off Allen Iverson's tattoos? Yes. Okay. So when that happened, a little corporate shuffle happened where they took control of the NBA's official magazines away from the executive who had always been in charge of them, who had done on, on whose watch the airbrushing had happened. And they needed to hand that control to somebody with some credibility, right? It couldn't just be like another executive at the NBA. So they, in a hurry, went and hired the founding editors of Slam Magazine, who had that credibility, right? This is Tony Gervino and his trusted managing editor, Anna Gebby. And so, for, those, for those that are unfamiliar with Slam, Slam yeah. was a... Uh, I think it still it's, exists. It's still going? I think so. So, so when I read Slam as a kid, it was real. Uh, there was something authentic about Slam. I, I, uh, I remember just looking through it, and they always had like cool pictures. It was hip. It was, um, it wasn't as polished as what you would see on Sports Illustrated. It, it, it was a different kind of magazine that I would imagine um, was probably going after a younger audience. Um, at least for me, that's what it felt like. So it was a very cool magazine. Um, it was hip. That's how I, that's how I perceived it. Yeah. And there was like this look like the, you know, the NBA is played prominently by black people and there's this very white lens on it. Slam was like, Hey, we can have black people telling black stories in a black voice. And, um, you know, but like that's growing, a good- up, growing up. So like when I say they're targeting young people, cause in my opinion, like I'm 10 years younger than you, like I grew up on, you're, you're 11. I'm, I'm 11. And, yeah. <laughs> and as an 11 year old, sorry, I an 11 year old, I grew up on rap music. And so I grew up with Tupac yeah. and, Biggie and um, yeah. so like airbrushing his tattoos for a young white kid in suburban, right. you know, DC was, yeah, we were not down with that. We were, um, yeah. so I think that's probably why slam, they probably hit that generation where kids are listening to rap music and, you know, th- there was a whole culture that was cool um in there in there uh so anyway i think maybe that's my perception of it uh in a lot of ways i um even though you weren't connected to downtown washington dc and the urban uh life that that existed there um you hip-hop and rap did such an amazing job of going out to the suburbs that um a magazine like slam was just part of that culture Absolutely. And, and they actually, they later started XXL, which was actually was a hip hop magazine. It was the same editorial crew. Um, yeah, no, it was great. So when they moved over to this MBA job, uh, they learned at the last minute, they were not legally allowed to bring over most of the freelancers that they've been using. So they had this desperation of like, we need to fill all these magazines on short notice. 
so Anna called me as like a favor. She was like, would you mind if you know, just want to sign, I know you do like real journalism, but like, you know, if you could just do this one sports assignment, it was such a good idea. It was a, they had a clever thing called ask Jason Williams where they asked the same questions to both, like to um, like the then college point guard and Jason Williams, the power forward of the nets. Right. So I just got the power forward of the nets assignment. And so, this was the best assignment I ever got. And I thought that the rest of them would all be like this, but they were like, here are the questions. Like, number one, this is how long ago it was. Do you use email? Was like the first question. And, uh, and I forget the other ones now, but so I call up the Nets and so I'm doing this thing. Like, yeah, of course, you know, come on by. So I go to the Nets practice facility and they have, this has never happened to me ever since. They had like a table and two chairs set up. They had sit here and they bring Jason over to me and he sits down. I don't know why they did that. It's never happened again. And then Jason's like the best interview that ever was. And I, the first question I ever asked a new player, I'm pretty sure was, you know, do you use email? And Jason Williams like leans back and he's like, oh, hell yeah. Every time I get in the hot tub, I have my staff print out all of them and bring them to me. <laughs> and in my head, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to do this for a living. This is great. <laughs> I'm curious what, what white chocolate Jason Williams' uh, answer to that question would be. <laughs> Oh, he was just a terror. I didn't do it. I didn't, but in the magazine, he's just one of the worst interviews of all time. He's a terrified <laughs> interviewee. Like he would just be like, oh, I did my, you know, I was like, and, and probably the most exciting NBA basketball player. Um, I, maybe one of, uh, you mentioned Iverson earlier. Iverson was too, but I've yeah. always wondered like, when are we going to get our next Jason Williams, uh, the point guard? Because it Ooh. was such must see TV. He would do things on the basketball court that you just, other guys wouldn't be fearless enough to do. And he played with this recklessness that was so exciting to watch. I mean, as a kid, like I would follow John Stockton because I actually thought I could maybe do some things that John Stockton could do. But you're watching Jason Williams and you're just like, there's no, I, I don't know how to do that. It was unbelievable. That thing, there was like a thing that he did repeatedly where he could, kind of bring the ball behind his back and then elbow it like it with across the back over there. Like you, I saw it in person and I was like, I don't know. I don't even, I don't understand what <laughs> I tried it. I tried it. It was not working. And uh, so, oh, so, so this alumni reunion uh, ends up being your first entry point into sports journalism. Um, and when you're sitting there at the Nets arena, um, and you're sitting there with Jason Williams, the power forward, who he has a story unto itself, which we don't need to get into right now. But um, and you're interviewing him. What did that feel like in that moment? Like, can you take me into the body and, and what did it feel like to be sitting there with him? That was cool. So I still sometimes can kind of remember like the feeling of going into an arena. Like my dad would take me to Blazer games now and again. Um and when you're entering the arena, I got this kind of like, oh, we're going to see a big thing here. Like, this is like a big deal thing, right? You kind of get that little, same thing like going to a concert. You know, you're like, oh, there's like famous things and momentous things and loud things, right? And um, very much not like normal life. And so, you know, the, the, the champion center of the New Jersey Nets is not a glamorous place. It is, it's not even like a business park. It's like, it's like the warehouse behind the business park right? like, like you lost a lot of that special feeling just getting out of your car right so um it wasn't like oh my gosh i've never been somewhere so exciting but you know he's a very tall man and uh he's funny 
and he is a really good basketball player. And so I had a little bit of that then. I, I have to admit, though, maybe if you want to have a career like mine, you can't have a lot of that, right? Like, I actually think I'm less impressed with just – at one point, I got taken to a fancy black tie event with a bunch of famous people. And I realized going home that, like, oh, I was supposed to be, like, wowed, Right. I didn't really put that together. And then I later was like talking to my wife, Jessica about it. And she was like, Oh, that's not the way to impress you. Like the way to impress you is to show up for work every day for like 10 years in a row. I'm like, yeah, that's true. That, now that impresses me. Right. But yeah, I'm not, I right now, if LeBron was sitting here, like I would really want to talk to him about a whole bunch of things, but I wouldn't be like excited. I wouldn't be like giddy about it. What's interesting. I can remember the first time where I had that realization in a, in a similar capacity my grandpa had Parkinson's disease for a long time. And so my family got involved with Parkinson's foundation and we went to a gala for it. Uh, same thing, black tie. I remember Janet Reno walking in and my dad being like, it's Janet Reno. And I'm like, eh, like, eh. Um, and since then, <laughs> since then I've met like really famous or I would even just say interesting people. And I, look, I still like, I met, President Obama and my heart started lucky. Uh, yeah, like I might I that <laughs> that's a whole story. I'll tell that story. It's I don't think I've ever yeah. told it on the podcast. So Let's I met it. him at a golf course and so he's walking off 18 and everybody's there and I have my son. So I bring my son over and everyone's got their kids and there's probably 20, 30 people there. So it's not that many people. And he's walking down the line, shaking hands, and there's babies everywhere. I mean, everyone's got their kid. And so I've got my Why son. Why are there so many kids at the golf course? Like, was it a special event? No, it's like it's a country club. So people were just like having dinner. So I was having dinner with my son. We look out. Oh, he's coming to eighteen. Let's go outside. And so everyone just brings our kids out there. And at the time, my son was probably one years old. I had the fattest son of all time. All right, like big, big cheeks. Like yeah. he was so he was so fat that people would stop and smile and be like, whoa. And so President Obama's walking, shaking hands, babies, stops at me and my son and goes, this one looks like he's underfed. <laughs> now, he's got guys behind him with all kinds of guns and, you know, but this is my son. Like, I can call him fat, but I, first of all, so... <laughs> Like, first of all, how many babies does Obama see on a regular basis? Like, literally, the guy is kissing babies for a living. And he had the audacity to stop my son and say, you look underfed. And there's no way he uses that line on every fat kid that he sees. And I'm thinking, what do I do here? Like, do I make a comment about how skinny he is? Because dude is so skinny. Do I say, like, hey, man, eat a slice of pizza? Like, no, that's probably not the right move. Uh, and this is when he was still president. So it had to be, no, he wasn't, he wasn't president anymore. Gosh, it must've been the end. It was the end of his presidency. So he still had all the secret service. Uh, so he, it was still the end of his presidency. And I'm like, what do I do? And I, of course I didn't, I didn't say anything. Um, but to this day, that's the memory is that the president called my son fat. And my son now is, thankfully thinned out and uh is the best but we have that he's story. never gonna not know that happened though right like like your son's always gonna know that story always and we got a picture of him like yeah 
you know, meeting my son. So it's part of the allure, but back to what you're talking about. Yeah. There, there are like, I've never met Michael Jordan. I think he would be, um, as a, like the child in me would come out in that. Cause I grew up like with the poster on the wall, but yeah, when you're around people that are doing amazing things, you, you get more, at least I get more curious about like, all right, how'd you come to to be like, what's your framework? And I've had a lot of people on this podcast that are mind blowing, even more than fame, you know, purple heart winners, Navy seals, astronauts, like crazy people doing crazy stuff. Um, but, but to, to your point, I think if you do get overwhelmed by those moments, you, you lose the opportunity to do your job really well. Um, so it sounds like for you, right from the get-go, you were really into doing your job and doing that really well, that you didn't have a whole lot of space to reflect on what you're actually doing in that moment and the magnitude of that. Yeah, no, I, I had uh, that black tie event that I was talking about was a Lance Armstrong event when he was still cycling. And, um, and he was right there, you know, and, and I remember really, really struggling. I was like, I think it's, I follow cycling closely. I, I, I really, I love cycling. I really do. But I, I was like, in my head, I'm like, I think it's 90, 10. He's a dope. But this is the phrase I had in my head. I go 90%. He's a doper. And if I had in this event where all you can really do is be like, Oh, like clap on the shoulder. Like, I was like, I don't, I was in my head, I'm like, what do you say? How do I get insight into this doping thing? Like, what can I, what's a clever, friendly seeming question where I can make him say something interesting on this topic, which to me is the whole story here with this guy, right? But I, man, I just couldn't figure it out. But that's what I was thinking about. <laughs> There's a part of you that sounds very son of a, son of a doctor. There's a part of you that sounds oh. very, it, well, I mean it like very into science and very into trying to find truth, um, and being realistic. And, um, is that, is that what your dad is like? Is he very like matter of fact, you know, trying to find a truth? Um, yeah. So we would sometimes make him come home and be like, you know, did you have any interesting cases today? Which sounds so dorky, but he would have a lot, he would often regale us with tales of like, person who came in with a sore abdomen and we couldn't figure out what it was, but it turned out she ate a rock or something or, you know, like whatever, like these different um, stories. Uh, there is, I do like, there's a thing I really like about the way doctors go about what they're doing, which is one, it's very people focused. You can't just, you know, you are not removed in some lab, right? Like you're really like, I'm trying to help you today feel better. Um, and, but nevertheless, like, there is no treatment without diagnosis, right? Like, like the, you have to understand what it is if you're going to be any use at all. This, I feel, is where it's like my job, right? Where, you know, if we're going to have an event praising Lance Armstrong, like, we should understand what he's there for. Why is he the one who's here with all the yellow jerseys? Like, it's because of a man named Michele Ferrari. Like, Michele Ferrari does very interesting things that we probably should write a book about, right? He's the genius who won seven tours, right? Like, um, this guy just happened to be the one who was like smart enough to figure out to go listen to Michele and do all that work. But a lot of people had bigger lungs, stronger muscles, and just didn't have Michele. And they would work just as hard and they would finish like 100 yards behind because they didn't have quite such good doping. So to me, like the diagnosis is Michele won those tours, right? Like, but, but even there's, a, there's something, there's a space in between 
where you get to the, the diagnosis, which is asking questions. And yeah. a great doctor asks great questions to figure out what the diagnosis could be. And I love this idea that uh, uh, like, if you ever go to a great doctor, they ask amazing questions and they've got that presence. And if you've ever been to a not so great doctor, you walk in and they go, oh, I know what it is. It's this. And uh, you're like, wait a second. Like, yeah, yeah, you, you want to run. Yeah. And so I love this comparison between a doctor and a lawyer because lawyers will often say, don't ask a question that you don't know the answer to. And I've always been just turned off by that. Like the purpose of asking a question is that you don't know the answer. And so great doctors to me ask questions that they don't know the answer to. That's why they're asking the question. Whereas great lawyers maybe ask a question that they do know the answer to so they don't get caught uh, with a line that they don't know how to handle. And the one thing I've noticed with a lot of the journalists that I've had on the podcast is curiosity is this driver to a lot of their work. So I would love to learn a little bit more about how curiosity and asking questions plays a role in the work that you do. This is the stuff I think about all the time. Um, my friend Kevin Arnovitz, who like has told me several, he has often observed things about me that when he said them, I was like, I don't think that's true. But later I sure he's right. <laughs> it takes me a while, but, uh, he's like, Oh, you like how systems work. You want to, you want to understand how systems work. And, um, when he said it, I was like, I think that actually my first thought was that's what Kevin likes. Kevin's obsessed with systems, but it turns out I think I am too. So like, I, you know, I, I, I want to know, um, like, well, I've put years into thinking about what should be the rules of NBA basketball. Right. Not because I care about them. It's just that's what you can tinker with to see if you can make the game better, right? And um, and they are the way they are because nobody has asked a lot of open-ended questions about this. Like, what's the, or Kevin did an amazing presentation in Sloaners about like how many games should there be in a season? It's the most brilliant thing on YouTube. You should really watch it. Like, it's unbelievable. But uh, you know, eighty-two is certainly the wrong number, even if all you care about is money. Like, it should be far fewer. Just just on the money argument. The health stuff is a home run that should be fewer, but put them both together, it's amazing. Anyway, so to me, I think, um, wait, you probably know this study. Do you know uh, they saw a game, I think, as a classic like psychology study? Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't think so. If you give me more, maybe I do, but I don't know it off the Dartmouth-Princeton football game in the 60s, and these – um, pioneering researchers surveyed the heck out of everybody who watched the game. It was a violent game. There was a broken leg and lots of fouls. And, um, and for years afterward, they pulled like everybody who was there, they showed them film of the game and like just asked them to interpret like what they saw, like who was dirty on this play, you know, basically a million questions about what happened. And it, the takeaway is basically that, it's hard to even pin down that there was a real event that like exists independent of our brains, right? It's if you're a Dartmouth fan, you saw a thing that was completely different from a Princeton fan, and you you can't even see what's happening because you're just filtering. And I know I've seen other research that um, like our five senses can take in about as much data as an Ethernet cable, but that your prefrontal cortex can take. 0.04 of a percent of that, I think is the number. So you're filtering so much with emotion, and, you know, with, pre- with this prejudice, just even what you recognize as having seen. So our goal, if you want to know what the truth is, if you want to be a fan, just go be a fan, it's fine. But if you want to know what the truth is, you kind of have to try to go in just blank 
like those doctors just asking the most open-ended questions. What happened? How do you feel? Hmm. What else would we be thinking about? Like, was there anything else? Just these sort of short, curt, just leaving all this oxygen for the truth to appear. Um, it's, hard, it's hard to do that, but it's worth trying. That's how you can learn a lot more interesting things than if you go in with, I'm pretty sure I know what the story is here. Awesome. Let's go, let's go back to True Hoop. So you're, it's 2005, you start this blog up. When did you realize that this would become something that people would actually want to read and be a viable product? It was crazy. That was the most sort of fortuitous thing that's ever happened to me. Everything was just roses for True Hoop from the second it existed. It was crazy. Like, um, it was the first few weeks, I think I started getting emails from like, NBA GMs and you know just I was like oh my gosh people are totally reading this the traffic was like a hockey stick um maybe six weeks in I got this call from Forbes saying that it had won a best of the web award for like the best sports blog and like it literally had existed for six weeks <laughs> and um um Google called because they wanted to talk to me about how I was able to grow an audience so fast um someone met Google um all what's, kind what's of the answer to that question any idea uh, a big part of it is aggregation. Um, I would do a lot. Of, I would do like the roundup of what was happening everywhere else on the web. And apparently like sole practitioners running a website don't usually leap up in the Google rankings fast, but the one trick according to them at that time, it's probably changed now is, you know, there's a lot of Google effect, Google benefit to having lots of inbound and outbound linking. Got it. Um, so if I think about Hoops Hype and what Hoops Hype would do as an aggregator, you were doing that at, at True Hoop as well, just linking interesting articles. This is before social media. And so that people would, would find you. Um, and then you became. Well, and then all those sites out there would feel warm and fuzzy about True Hoop and would link back. And that's really the Google magic. Um, I didn't know any of that. I just thought that I wanted to like find cool things, you know. Um, but yeah, that, that was just a fun ride. And at one point ESPN called and I was not an ESPN watcher or subscriber. We didn't even have cable TV and there. Were, and, um, I've often, so many people have the dream of working ESPN that when I talk to students or whatever, they're often like, you know, basically like, how did I weasel my way into this thing? Everybody wants. I was like, dude, I didn't even like, when they called, I was like, oh, this will be interesting. You know, <laughs> like, I didn't think we were a cultural match to begin with. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they wanted to talk about my future. So I went to Bristol and we sat in cafeteria for like seven hours and talked about True Hoop. And a year after that, I ended up actually joining ESPN. But. I'm curious about what it was like for you um, when you do decide to go to ESPN. What, what was that moment where you said, yep, let's do it? What was that like for you? <laughs> um. I had had a bad experience working for the radio station in Madison where um, they sold to a sponsor that like I would do a bunch of live reports from a city bus. <laughs> it's a pretty basic thing. It happens to me, you know, all the time, but it offended my like journalism school sensibilities that I would be doing like real news that would be sold. Um, so, uh, and there were a couple other things like that for magazines and such. Um, so I was worried the ESPN was going to like do something creepy with advertisers on true hoop. And so I, and I had been working unedited, like right with no editor whatsoever. And I knew that could work. So 
And at that time I was doing this really sensitive William Wesley investigation. I don't know if you were reading back then, but it was like a, um, it was a big deal. And there were a lot of like corporate interests surrounding it. Uh, It was a, it was a corruptible story. It was a story I was very worried about how a big corporate entity would handle. And so I just drew my line in the sand. I didn't want to edit it. I wanted to publish live to the SBN site. And they were like, oh, it's crazy. So I was like, all right, great. Then we won't do it. And that was the, that was why I took a year. Um, and eventually they were like, okay, you can do that. And uh, they had the ability to kill a story, um, but they didn't have the ability to read it before it was published. Hmm. And uh, once they agreed to that, I, uh, I agreed. Um, Let's talk about editing for a second, because you've been in that role as an editor. Yeah. You've been a writer. Is there one of those roles that you enjoy? And I'm curious about the different mindsets that are needed for each. Uh, it's, yeah, so super different. So I had to learn. I feel like I'm kind of naturally, uh, it feels natural to me to be alone with a laptop and try to put my thoughts into I, into words, right? Um, what's worked for me is that thing I was talking about where they pointed at me to be executive producer of the TV show. <laughs> we have to like, now I've got to worry about what everybody's doing, right? Um, it's I love it, right? And I love the dinner afterward. I love the camaraderie and I love the, you know, my phone to this day is just like, just all of its noises it makes are from like people I worked with through the years. Right. And, um, and I love them. Right. Like it's a, it's a pretty cool thing to sort of start to understand the different personalities and, you know, Oh no, like she's going to be fine with this terribly difficult assignment. Like he's going to want to check in and, you know, on and on sort of the way that all works. I don't pretend that I'm like a natural at that, but it's the thing I've worked on more than anything else in my work life is just how can I help you succeed, right? And it's so easy when you're working with the kind of people who make it to ESPN.com's MBA section as of four or five years ago, right? Like these are some of the highest achieving, hardest work people in the world. I counsel them all the time to work less, right? Like, this is an easy kind of coaching to do. I'm not pretending I'm like, I don't think I'd be very good at, at, at coaching people who just didn't like their jobs or weren't feeling super motivated. Right. Like I, I'm never going to break a clipboard. <laughs> never. But, but I think, I think that's one of the misconceptions about leadership or management or coaching. Like I feel the same way. I can't coach people that don't want to be coached a, and that aren't hardworking or, or driven. Like that's foundational baseline. And Oh, by the way, I, I, let's go into sports coaching, like Steve Kerr or Greg Popovich or whoever it might be, you know, they can't either. Um, right. And that's why the ingredients matter so much. Uh, that's why talent matters. And I use talent, not necessarily all hard skills, also the soft skills. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think. What do you mean hard to soft skills? That sounds fascinating to me. Yeah. I mean, hard skills is in the corporate world. They use hard skills to say like knowing how to use Microsoft Excel, uh, knowing, um, how to do certain skills that are necessary for a job. So in basketball, shooting would be a hard skill. Ball handling would be a hard skill. Um, you know, passing, defense, blocking shots, hard skills. Whereas soft skills are more internal, right? They're more have to do with our mind. So communication, confidence, uh, presence, uh, those are more soft skills. So in the corporate world, they do trainings for hard skills all the time onboarding, high potential training, um, teaching them skills that they need to do their job. And there's a big movement now to also train soft skills. And 
to appreciate that the inner game will run the outer game. So the soft skills will actually determine the hard skills. And oh, by the way, those hard skills, um, if you get to a certain level, like you said at ESPN, like they know how to write. Like you probably didn't have to teach them how to write or um, how to start a sentence or how to write a paragraph or how to end a article, but you might've taught them how to communicate um, or you might've taught them how to shut up and ask questions, right? And there are things that you can do that can elevate their ability. And I think it's the same thing in the sports world. Um, let's just use the Warriors because the Warriors are easy to talk about. You know, they've got guys with amazing skill from a hard skill, from a talent standpoint, but how do you mesh those skills together to make that team a championship team is something that Steve Kerr would probably say he's obsessed with. So um, anyway, that's, that's what we talk about. I actually don't like the term soft skills uh, because it indicates like soft sounds weak. So I actually use the term strong skills. Um, and that these are the, these are actually the things that'll make you strong. You know, it's like, if you want to go to the gym, okay, you want to go to the gym and you might have really great technique, but what's going to actually get you to put your shorts on and your shoes on and actually get to the gym is going to be the soft skills or what I'd call strong skills. So, um, yeah, thanks for asking that question. No, that's, and that's exactly. So the, one of the things I, well, I wouldn't say I emphasized it. It wasn't like on a whiteboard, but one of the things that I worked hard toward in indirect ways and just in building trust. I felt like building trust was my whole job, basically. Like I wanted the person who reported to me to trust me and I wanted the other people on the team to trust each other, right? And um, just create a culture where everyone felt like they didn't have to be clenching their fists with competitive tension over like, this is my work and this is their work. And, and the test of how well I was doing was will writer A open up their Rolodex and share a contact with writer B, right? And I can't prove this, but I'm pretty sure the True Presents team, which was a magical land for a short while at ESPN, led the history of the world of journalism on that exact thing, where you have no idea how much better the stories are when, um, I think I can tell you an example. Um, let me try to remember this. Uh, Tom Haberstroh was working on a story about the history of the three-pointer which is an amazing story. I'm so, it's, it's one of the most important stories I feel in them being, I can't get everyone to love it as much as I love it, but that's just how a lot of it is. Um, and, you know, and he had Pat Riley talking about it and he had Rick Pitino talking about it. He had all these people you'd want talking about it, but kind of missing was Larry Bird. And the play to, for Tom Haverstow to get Larry Bird was juggling all of his other duties. And I think he may have, no, he probably didn't have children, then, but um, you know, he's living in Miami, Larry Bird's in Indianapolis. The play was basically no promises from the Pacers. You fly all the way there, a tremendous hassle and expense, and you hope that the day you get there, he comes into the office, isn't in Serbia scouting somebody or whatever he's doing, and on top of that, agrees to talk to you one-on-one -on -one about this obscure thing. And maybe you'll get five minutes, and then you'll take your $1,000 flight back home. And, you know, anyway, that's not how it worked for us. There was... was uh, Tom Haberstroh is like, oh gosh, I'm trying to reach Larry Bird. And Jack McMullen says, like, I'm texting him your number right now. He's going to call you in the next half hour. Like that happened times a million, which just made every story better. And even just which story ideas you begin with starts to change when like this writer is telling her most precious story idea to that writer. And then they start talking and this other GM says this and how about this and blah, blah. And, you know, next thing you know, like we were, I would hear from writers who didn't work with us, like, where did these ideas come? 
right? Like, how do you guys know this stuff? Like, why? Like, we had this story about how home court advantage was diminished because players use Tinder, which means they can, like, hook up and go to bed hours earlier than if they had to go to a club, right? What a crazy thing. You have to know that before you can assign it, right? Like, we knew it because everybody talked to each other, right? That's the, that's a, that's, that was my job was to get everyone to talk to each other. So I did my thesis on home advantage in the NBA. Um, and the main takeaway that I had, I interviewed players, which was interesting, was that there's studies done that show that referee bias is one of the sure. biggest links to the advantage. Joe Price. And that they get more calls, right? And in, in uh, scorecasting, the book Scorecasting, I think John Wertheim, and they, they talked about that. And... So I had that data, but what was interesting in my research was when I interviewed players, they talked about their mindset when they were at home compared to being on the road. And at home, the coaches were saying, hey, let's be aggressive. Let's take it to them. Let's attack. Um, you know, let's go. And then on the road, they would say, let's try to steal one. Like, let's try to, you know, take mm -hmm. care of the ball. Like, make sure you don't screw up. And so the message he lost a version. So the yes. messaging that the coaching staff was giving them at home compared to on the road was different. And I had one person that I interviewed and I had to keep it confidential. Um, but, you know, guy who played in the NBA for a long time, successful career. And he said, I play better on the road than at home. He goes, look at my stats. I look up the stats and he's right. And part of the reason why he played better was at home, he was worried about, you know, his contract and living up to his contract and what the fans would say, getting his family tickets and, you know, being there for them. And his style of basketball was very much, he needed the green light to be successful. And so if he had anything that would get him out of that mindset of just being free and just playing free, it hurt him. And so he'd go on the road and be like, I know what time I am in the hotel. I know what time I'm napping. I know what time the chicken and pasta is going to come to my room. Um, and then I go to the arena and I just want to shut up the crowd and I get to play free and just it's an opportunity to shut up the crowd. So the conclusion that I came up with was that as coaches, the messaging that we use with our team is important. And at on the road, it should never be we're going to steal one. It should be let's go out and let's go take this. Like be as aggressive. We got nothing to lose. Um, let's we belong go. here. Yeah, like this is yeah. road warriors. And yeah. so I've worked with coaches uh, in my private practice to try to develop that language um, because I think it's really important. Um, and but have you, you know, seen the study with Justin Rao about this? Do you know what I'm talking about with the free throws? It was after your. I'm guessing this was after. So maybe 2000. 2001, maybe, um, at Sloan, and I'm sorry to interrupt you because I want to hear the rest of this, but um, so they looked at late game free throws and like the more the game is being determined by those free throws, um, the, the more the pressure on the free throw, right? And what happens then, of course, is the home crowd is silent for the home team to shoot free throws and loud for the road team. Well, the loud for the road team does not change anything. But the silent for the home team freaks them out because what happens now is this is ideally an absolutely routine motion, right? That you don't care about. You just like putting golf, like you should not use your brain, right? You should just boom, boom, automatic. Um, but when they go silent and it's, and now you're down one with 10 seconds left and everyone's like, now you really, really want to make it. And so you give it that special effort. And then what should be this mindless 320 or whatever muscles fire without 
any interruption. Now, like three of them, you really like control with your extra helpful brain and it screws it up. And I think actually Paul Pierce led the league in like having his free throw shooting percentage decline in those situations. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I got to look at that. I, I'm not familiar, but I was at uh, Capital One Arena in Washington, D.C. for the Washington Capitals game seven. And you could feel the tension in the arena. And you could see Carolina, the team they were playing, no expectations. Um, you know, they, they were just happy to be there. And in the overtimes, they went to double overtime. Carolina just dominated. Uh, they, and the caps were so flat. And you can just see the psychological difference, maybe some physical, right? Maybe they're older. You, you could chalk it up to some other stuff too, but it was, it was interesting to watch. So um, it's fascinating. The arena was pretty quiet. I mean, it would get loud, but there were definitely times where you could feel it being quiet. So it's interesting. Um, the question I had for you as you were describing the culture at True Hoop was here you are cultivating a organization where we're going to share information. We're going to share contacts. We're going to work together. It's teamwork. And I have been fortunate to be in with pro, pro basketball, pro soccer, sports organizations, pro hockey. And I can tell you that that's not always the case inside those organizations. So, you know, there might be a time, for example, where an assistant GM is keeping things close to the vest because they want to make sure that they are keeping their value on the team um, or the head coach has a different agenda than the general manager because the head coach wants to keep his job and there's only 30 of them. Let's just use the NBA and the GM is doing things to try to keep their job. And so there's often this disconnect as far as what we're all working toward the vision to go back to what you mentioned earlier. And so it's interesting to hear you almost use what makes a good sports organization or let's just use a good basketball organization at True Hoop, was there any intentionality behind that? Were you studying some of the best basketball organizations and noticing how they worked and then embedding those cultures into the culture you wanted to have at True Hoop? Um, I was studying like management and stuff. I have some books here in the office. Um, this one that really resonated with me, um, this one. <laughs> <laughs> resonant leadership uh do you know this one i do not he's this guy he's a heart um his more famous books called primal leadership uh richard boyatzis and annie mckee but anyway they, they talked a lot about how like a lot of books have the same thing now i think now there's a lot of research in this area that like it's kind of lee Coke is kind of full of it right like it's not about imposing your personality it's about like creating an environment where people feel safe to bring their personality right um i can't tell you that I ever saw an NBA team run in a way that I wanted to copy. Um, the Warriors later, right? The Warriors, I think, are the one team. Steve Kerr, to me, is the one leader where I'm like, oh, you would just pluck him and stick him in whatever company and expect it to work. Um, but I'm a journalist. A lot of the phone calls I would get were, you know, employee, this employee of this team would call me, and then this employee would call me. <laughs> like, you know, like, and it's like, oh, you guys obviously have a bad corporate culture because you're both calling me. You know, like... Um, so yeah, I, I've been aghast at how poorly most NBA teams are run with the weird peaks I get into them, but um, there are certainly exceptions and and I'm rooting for them, right? I'm rooting for the places where the employees feel great about the direction they're headed and their role and, and you know, just honestly, the, one of the happiest stories I've seen in a long time was um, it, towards the end of, uh, I think it was the 
Blazers Thunder Game 5, which ended up being the one where Lillard hit the big game winner. Um, Yusuf Nurkic left wherever he was convalescing, maybe the hospital, on crutches, came into the arena. He maybe wasn't even supposed to be off crutches, but he walked in. And um, and now the whole franchise is worried about his recently broken leg, right? And then there's a whole melee in the celebration after they win the series. And I think I'm right that it was Myers Leonard and Evan Turner assigned themselves the task of standing right next to Yusuf and keeping anybody from bumping into his leg, right? Now, I think there are probably 70% of the high schools in the country have teammates who would think that way and act that way in that situation. But in the NBA, it's almost like unhurt. You almost want to cry. It's so sweet, right? Like, like that's great. That, okay, that, those feel like real teammates to me, right? Somebody was like, oh, I'm not going to forget Yusuf and his broken leg while I'm happy, right? I'm going to remember him and look out for him in this moment. I don't even know that I would be good at that, but I love that they are. And that to me is a sign of good culture. It's rare in the NBA, as you know, right? It's not, you know, even on Magical Warriors, there's a lot of like, is Kevin Durant leaving? And uh, he wants it. I will will say in the last 15 years since I've been more informed as a sports person, just generally speaking, it's changed. Um, And it has gotten infinitely better. Uh, from a culture standpoint. And by the way, I think that's in part because I think the corporate world has dramatically progressed and changed. And uh, when you have Ray Dalio coming out with his book, Principles, and talking about this is at least what we're trying to do uh, around transparency and the importance of a good idea can come from anywhere. When you have, uh, there's a book out now called Trillion Dollar Coach, which is all about how Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google, uh, worked with a coach to help him be his best. And uh, I think when corporate world changes, uh, sometimes the sports world can change the corporate world and sometimes the corporate world can change the sports world. And so I have been amazed specifically, I would say, if I'm evaluating my knowledge of sports since, let's call it around when you started your blog, like a little bit before then. So the last 15, 20 years, um, the changing of the guard from we're just going to take a guy who played basketball, stick him as our general manager. Then we're going to take another basketball guy and stick him as our head coach. And then we're just going to let them do their job and they're going to live in silos uh, to see that change. And now you have all kinds of smart people, some that played, some that didn't, uh, a diverse group of people. There still is going to be more diversity over the years uh, with women and um, different cultures. And But you're now seeing guys come over from Europe. You're now seeing people get elevated from high school or from college. They're just looking at culture differently. Um, and I have stories that I'll, we maybe we'll talk about off air of general managers and head coaches that really were intentional about what they were trying to do culturally. And a lot of them were similar to yours where, Hey, we're going to take the best idea in the room. Best idea wins. And we don't care where that idea comes from and we need to be open to those possibilities. And I'm telling you that those weren't conversations that I was hearing in 2003, 2004. Um, it was much more top down and that's the only way to do it. Um, and so it's fascinating. I mean, uh, you see this every day, uh, like the Clippers as an example. I know their assistant GM, his last name's Redden, really well-respected guy, decided to turn down a, a 
potential GM or assistant GM job with the Pelicans, I think yesterday to stay with the Clippers because they're trying to build something. So you see stuff like that starting to percolate. Whereas in the past, I think people only chased either the dollars or they only chased the position. Um, I think people are being more intentional. And I think that's in part due to cultures that are being created in certain organizations. So um, that's just, yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. It's gotten so much better. Um, totally agree. I, there's the, like, a marker for how your culture is doing outside of sports, I think, is this gender thing. It's not a good one, but, you know, where people have been dumb and stuck in their ways is because they're projecting the powers that be, right? Your choice is to sort of, like, reform or not reform, which would mean staying as you were and the way that you were in almost every place is, like, it's just sort of beholden to some strong voice who's usually a man, right? And so you get these sort of cockamamie schemes of these companies where it's like that's just what he likes really is the answer that's why we do it this way that's why all these this is why the me too movement me too movement exists right it's because power lots of people were used to protecting powerful men right it's just a habit of how we do the job right so um or christopher hitchens has this whole thing about how like the number the, the only according to him he has this whole kind of essay and and riff about like the only thing that works to lift people out of poverty is to empower women like Every other kind of nonprofit activity, in fact, is not demonstrated to make a long-term change. But if you do this one thing, right, if you empower women, now you, like, healthcare gets better, education gets better, and on and on. Like, the whole chain gets virtuous. Um, sport, look what we do. Look what we're talking about. We're talking about, like, the last place on the planet that's, like, 99.9 plus percent men, right? Like, we're going to be late to this party, right? Like we, we, we sort of have female owners, um, but we don't like, we, we don't have female head coaches. We don't have female GMs. Like, you know, like the room will get a lot better at recognizing different kinds of voices and teasing ideas out of the woodwork. Um, when we're, we're not, when like right now the qualification we're getting in that room is legitimately having insanely high testosterone, right? Like, like that's, how you get to be a big name in the NBA and uh, and that's and people who are drawn to that, right? Those two groups. Well, that's a tough place to end up with uh, what's really moving now in like, let me be a better listener. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So what, I, what I'd love to do to finish up, because we've been talking for a while now and this has been really fun and I've really enjoyed it, but I'd love to, for you to talk about leaving ESPN. You had a 10 year run there. Uh, you built out some of the coolest stuff that came out of basketball coverage. I'm sure it was a very fulfilling experience, but I'd love for you to talk about what you're up to now uh, and share the idea, share the vision, uh, and just give people some context as far as what True Hoop 2.0 looks like or whatever you, however you think about it. I mean, I'm very thankful to ESPN. I got this, I, the whole time I was there, I was learning, right? Um, I learned how to manage people, which was an, you know, on the job, which was amazing. I didn't have to like stop working and go to some university. I had to like work with the greatest employees in the world, um, which was really amazing and cool. Um, and I got to see, this is, I was the first generation of journalists of all time who see data on every story. Um, the entire history of journalism, they didn't know what worked. They would, you know, sit around in bars after following them, like, oh, that was a great story. That's a great story. But they didn't know if the audience liked this magazine or that one because they just didn't have a to b data right um on the internet you do i didn't seek it but you know every single true post i would know what the comments were what the traffic was what the inbound links were what the 
uh, social media reaction was, what the mainstream media reaction was, what the coaches said. I could, or I could know all this stuff about everything. I would get emails about everything. And over time, I learned that everything I had learned in journalism school about what made a good story was wrong. Um, we just had the, it was just all the wrong factors. Like we were using all the wrong DNA of what we thought mattered. So, um, and what, does, what does make a popular story? I mean, it's a, um, it's sort of like asking what makes like a healthy person. There's like a million things have to come together. Um, but it's way more about managing the emotions of the reader. Like very, very few people behave in the way that they're seeking information. Like here's your Mavs game story. The world's like, yawn. It's just not how it works. Like we might be NBA obsessed, but not many people are. Like, meanwhile, for a long time, it's it's been surpassed many times since. But um, Kate Fagan wrote a story about uh, a University of Pennsylvania runner who committed suicide. For a long time, that was the most read story in the history of ESPN.com. Mm -hmm. So we have all these meetings about like we need more celebrities and more information. It's like, well, this has no celebrities or information. This is just a story, like a story that moves you. Or we had we started podcasts at ESPN while I was there, and and you know at one point it's like oh look we had twenty thousand downloads of a podcast with, with a very very famous host, and like twenty thousand. This American Life had a million with no celebrities. Like what are we so terrible at that with this huge platform, this American Life is what is the math there like a factor of five thousand <laughs> something like that right like. Um, storytelling right like real deal hollywood knows about this right you need to get me hooked into a character and you need to make me care about them and i need to go through emotional shifts where i'm going to just desperately feel the need to hang on so that's what we're trying to do trying to like bring some of that to basketball journalism at the newly relaunched true hoop um with these kind of big investigative things you wouldn't know about the nba you know it's a big series on mikhail prokhorov the owner of the nets who's a real deal oligarch with all sorts of interesting ties to like the Trump tower meeting and all this stuff. And, um, I was actually working all day today on this LeBron series where LeBron has, uh, a very particular kind of brain and approach to the game where he's an obsessive worker, which makes him one of the finest athletes, maybe the finest athlete in the history of the planet. Um, I don't think that's overstating things, but it makes him a difficult teammate, right? He's, he's, He's almost entire, entirely intolerant of people who don't approach the game the way he does, which is why Steph Curry is playing with all of these unearthed gems, all these Draymond Greens and Andre Godalas who are able to blossom alongside Steph. LeBron basically never has that because he only wants to see guys who show up two and a half hours earlier to practice like he does. And it puts him with Mike Miller and Dwayne Wade and guys who don't have cartilage anymore in their knees you know so he's playing with old guys so anyway we're getting these kind of series of teasing out these different things um that's at the heart of what we're doing david thorpe uh who i think you know do you know david thorpe yeah um he's bringing his crazy uh brilliant basketball eye uh, he watches the game and just sees a million things i don't see so you know he's a thankfully for me he's a regular contributor and um that it's uh, just with the lebron thing there's something that i've been asking smart basketball people this question knowing what you know now just you know everything that you know now right like who is the person the number one person that you would pick to build your team around um over the last 20 years like and, and you have to remember that you know that lebron has switched teams multiple times 
Um, you know, I, that's part of the story. You have to know, like Kobe, similar to LeBron, like if you're not uh, manic as a worker, uh, he's not going to, you know, he's going to break up with Shaq, right? Like you have to take that into account. I, I say that there's two superstars in the last 30 years that everything that I know that I would build my team around. And, and before that, it's Jordan for me, just because Jordan, whatever his flaws were as a teammate, punching guys in the face, whatever it might have been, Scotty. People don't even notice that. <laughs> Scotty, Scotty never <laughs> left, right? Like, like Phil and him had a long marriage. So uh, for me, it's Jordan. But post-Jordan, like there's two superstars that I would, I would probably pick one and two, and it's Duncan and Curry. And it's Duncan and Curry because, look, Duncan I know flirted with leaving the Spurs, but he didn't. He stayed. Um, to have superstars that are able to get along with other guys, it's just so rare. And that's not saying I think they're better than LeBron. Um, it's kind of like the MVP concept. It, 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 it's just an interesting conversation to have is like who are the people that you would build your franchise around knowing everything you know you own the team who do you want for the next 15 years because as much as LeBron goes from you know a a good team and then goes to a bad team and turns that bad team into a good team and the impact he has on the basketball court you just don't know what he's going to do the next year if he's going to stay or if he's going to leave um and and that as if you're owning the team is is relevant um, so I, I look at Curry and I look at Duncan and I am blown away by their leadership, by their willingness to say, yeah, come and join me. Almost their ability to not let their ego get in the way of being a great teammate. And um, I, I think both of them are incredible in that light. So I, I love asking that question. I've had other people like, it's LeBron. I just roll with LeBron, you know, forget everything else. We'll try to keep them, but you know, I'll, I'll just put my cards in there. There's just something I've been thinking about and uh, you know, maybe it's something that you can think about as you're writing that piece. Like who is the person you really want to roll with for, for 20 years, knowing everything that you know? Um, it's a good hypothetical. I, mean, I think you get, look, you, you usually don't get a superstar, right? So you get whichever one you can, right? And I do think you, the owner, let's say, it is your job to create an environment where like the problem with LeBron is he won't trust you. He's never trusted an owner, right? We can say that's his fault, or we can say it's not his fault, right? Like, like you know, maybe if he trusted an owner, he'd be super stable, right? Like, you know, he's been in environments. You know, that Cleveland team is pretty wacky. Um, and, uh, you know, and the Miami one is a little weird. I mean, it was like, you know, they created their the, – the design was to create a cocoon, right? And they did, and they won championships. But what if there was a – owner capable of getting LeBron excited about the owner like that would probably be an interesting thing to see right um the fact that there isn't I think a little bit is on owners um and I did I had real conversations with people close to LeBron before the 2010 decision and there were this was the this was the concern like and I know this now like there there are people now who are like is there an NBA owner who's up to the job of running and owning and running a well-run team and it's a there's not an obvious yes, right? Like maybe the Clippers have turned the corner, right? You mentioned that, um, you know, the Warriors, I think we really like the leadership up to the level of Bob Myers. And then we're like, hopefully it'll be okay about that, right? Like, um, you know, I, so owners are have been a destabilizing force largely, right? Um, 
So to me, the, the answer is you, I would take those two guys you talked about. Of course, I think I'd add Kevin Garnett um, only because he, I think he's willing to be among the top five players in the history of the game and let other people do stuff. <laughs> right. Well, um, and loyal to a city like Minneapolis. Right. And, and so yeah. like he didn't want to leave Minneapolis. And I was actually thinking of Garnett as I was talking about it, because Garnett has this quote for what does he want to be remembered for? And he says, I want to be remembered for being a great teammate. Um, yeah. So I love that you put him in that mix. I think that's, that's true. Okay. We've been chatting forever. Um, awesome. What I'd love for you to do is just promote true hoop. Uh, where can we find you on Twitter? I know you're active there. Let people know where they can follow you, learn about True Hoop and all the wonderful things you're doing. If they want to subscribe, I'll give you a shout out. I subscribe. So I get your emails with all kinds of cool content um, in it. Uh, you can subscribe, I believe, for $100 a year or $10 a month. Um, so if people want to do that, uh, look, Henry and his team, they put out content. If you are a basketball geek, um, it's it's what you want to read. If you're a basketball geek, I would imagine you're already probably there. But if, if you want to become a smarter basketball fan and you're just interested in human behavior in general, the Prokhorov piece that you mentioned got me thinking a lot about how did we even get to this place where he would own a team. And I actually had a conversation with my family about that. And so it leads to... Really, oh, I want to know more about that. <laughs> yeah. So it leads to like really interesting uh, dinner conversations. So uh, anyway, where can people find your work and, and what you're up to? I appreciate everything you said. Uh, so truehoop.com, you can just for free put your email address in there and then we'll notify you with free posts, which come once a week or so. Uh, at truehoop on Twitter, very active with all the time. Probably should dial that down a little bit. Um, but it's the playoffs, you know, the playoffs. You got to step it up. And then uh, as you mentioned, so if you go to truehoop.com, you can subscribe there and then we'll give you, it, it's basically two premium posts a week, which are uh, crazy magazine style, sort of heavy amount of work on into them, insights into the MBA that I'm absolutely certain you can't get anywhere else because they came from this attic. <laughs> awesome. So I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And of course you can listen to all of our episodes at intentionalperformers.com. Henry, great to get to know you. I think we spent time together in a coffee shop where we felt we did basically what we're doing now. So it's cool to catch up and share you and some of the conversations we've had in the past with the world. And uh, I'm excited to see where True Hoop goes and continue to have some conversations with you uh, as the playoffs continue to move forward. So great to talk. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. But one of the things that I worked hard toward in indirect ways and just in building trust. I felt like building trust was my whole job, basically. Like I wanted the person who reported to me to trust me and I wanted the other people on the team to trust each other, right? And um, just create a culture where everyone felt like they didn't have to be clenching their fists with competitive tension over like, this is my work and this is their work. And, and the test of how well I was doing was, will writer A open up their Rolodex and share a contact with writer B, right? And I can't prove this, but I'm pretty sure the True Presents team, which was a magical land for a short while at ESPN, led the history of the world of journalism on that exact thing.